All right, I want you to open your Bible with me to the book of Titus. If you don't have a Bible, I'll give you a couple seconds to pull out your phone and type in the Google search bar, Titus chapter 1. Get that pulled up, because we're starting a new series this morning through Paul's letter to Titus. And I'll tell you a little bit later why the book of Titus, but um, I think it'll be obvious to you, honestly. Y'all are smart people. You know. But as you're getting to Titus chapter 1, I want you to think about something with me. What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, a city on a hill? A city on a hill. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase? Jerusalem. Okay, there you go. I like that one. Jerusalem makes sense. It is a city on a hill. But for a lot of people, that phrase calls to mind images of America. America. In 1630, John Winthrop was a preacher in Southampton, England. And he stood up before a, a group assembled like this and told them that they were embarking on a wonderful experiment, an expedition and a journey casting themselves on the mercy of God and heading to the new world. They were the pilgrims. They were about to set sail on the Mayflower for Plymouth Colony in New England. And he told them, the whole world's watching you. You'll be proof of what God is capable of doing. You will be a city on a hill. But John Winthrop wasn't the last person to use this language to talk about America. January 1961, John F. Kennedy was elected president, and he said... I'm not coming in, bringing Democrats and Republicans. I'm bringing a new administration, a new kind of administration. We're going to rise above to meet the challenges that face our country. We're going to be a city on a hill. President Reagan made constant use of the term in the 80s uh, as America waged the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Some of y'all remember that. American democracy was like a city on a hill of what's possible for a free-minded people. President Obama reference the phrase over and over, one time specifically at the University of Massachusetts in Boston as a, at a commencement address. He looked before the people, different races, ethnicities, backgrounds, and he told them, you are a perfect example of what's possible in America. doesn't matter what family you came from, it's possible for you to achieve your dreams. America's a city on a hill. So I think for a lot of people, yeah, the phrase a city on a hill is really common, pervasive in culture. You've heard it a thousand times, and maybe Jerusalem comes to mind. But I think for a lot of people, it would be America. But I wonder how many people actually know that the phrase originates with Jesus, that he used the phrase. In Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, he looked at his disciples, and he said, y'all, I think that's how Jesus spoke, y'all are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. The same way that nobody lights a lamp and puts a basket on top of it, but rather sits it on a stand in the middle of the room so it gives its light to everybody in the house. Let y'all's light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. According to Jesus, his disciples, the people of God, the church, is a city on a hill. This morning we're starting this series through Titus because I think, at least in my view, non-scholarly opinion, Titus captures Jesus' heart for his church. What, what does Jesus mean when he says you're a city on a hill? 
You know, Jerusalem's notable because we can imagine what Herod's temple must have looked like. I mean, it was encrusted and plated with gold so that people from all over were blinded as the sun shone off its roof. Now, so it's tempting sometimes for the church to think it's a city on a hill because it has a beautiful building. And everybody can see it. It's got a tall steeple that stands above all the trees in a town. Everybody knows that's the church over there because they got a building. Other times we treat it like we're a city on a hill because we've got good programs. Hey, everybody take notice of what we got for your kids over here. Take notice about what people are doing. Take notice about what we're doing in our community. We're a city on a hill. Y'all see that, don't you? Other times it's because of budgets, rear ends in the pews. All those things seem to us to be the evidence of the church being special, set apart on a hill. Everybody sees it, but not so for Jesus, not so for Paul, not for the churches on the far-off island of Crete that Titus was supposed to be establishing. You see, I believe today, April 11th, 2021, the greatest challenge standing before the church in America, and since we don't really have any control over all of them out there, the greatest challenge for our church is to recover the identity of being the light of the world, a city on a hill. Won't come because we renovate our building, even though we get newspaper write-ups about it, which is nice. People be talking. That's what my mom says. Uh, people are talking about it. It's not because we have kids here at VBS or in Jesus Kids. No, to really rediscover, reclaim our identity as a city on a hill means that we're defined not by the buildings we have or the things we do, but by the faith, godliness, and hope that God produces in us by His gospel. And that's what I want to show you today and over the next several weeks as we work our way through this letter. That Do we want to be a city on a hill? Do we want to be a church set apart for God's glory? Well, because we renovate our building, even though that's nice, and because of the programs we do, we got to do them. It'll be because God works in us in such a way that He changes who we are so that everybody takes notes. He produces in us faith, godliness, and hope. And so I hope you got your Bible open to Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Titus chapter 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who, I like that, cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now I know it might seem a little bit down in the weeds to just dissect an introduction to a letter, but this introduction is pretty important. I mean, if you take a step back and just look at it, it's obvious that this kind of sets the context for what you and I are going to read and study over the next several weeks. I mean, it tells us the sender of the letter, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It tells us the recipient of the letter. Who's going to get it? Who, who's Paul writing to? Titus, 
my true child and a common faith. It tells us the goal. I want you to know grace, and I want you to know God's peace through God and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, in that way, the introduction is not all that different from all the other letters Paul wrote, or even the other letters that people were writing in the first century. I mean, this is a common sort of introduction to an epistle in the first century. Epistle just means letter, if I slip into that language. And so it's just common. It's just normal. But get this. This introduction also foreshadows all the content that we're going to see throughout this letter. It's kind of like a table of contents or an index. It alerts us to the important things for the Apostle Paul. Therefore, the important things for Titus, the churches he led, and important things for us. And so as we open this little introduction up, I want you to pay close attention. Because Paul didn't describe himself as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for nothing. It wasn't like his title on his business cards was slave of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. And that was that, you know, a title that he just kind of proudly wore everywhere. Now, he identified himself this way because it meant something to him. This is who he saw himself as. You think about it, it's, it's kind of some harsh language. My Bible says bondservant, but maybe your Bible says slave, a slave of God. Slaves don't have freedom. They're not free to choose what they do or where they go. And, and Paul saw himself as a slave of God, bound completely to do everything that God told him to do, to go where God said to go. To say what God said to say. Paul is a slave of God. And you can imagine that a person who sees themselves in that way lives a very particular kind of life, an obedient kind of life. But he also called himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means a person who is sent in the authority of another. And Paul certainly saw himself as an apostle of God, somebody that had been set apart by Jesus Christ for a very particular task and sent in his authority. And so when Paul writes to Titus, he doesn't just say, hey, it's your old buddy Paul. He reminds him of who he is and the mission that God had called him to. That he's not one speaking on his own authority. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, set apart, given the authority of Jesus. So take note of the things I have to say. He's a slave of God. Somebody bound not to fulfill his own desires, but to do everything that God said to him. So Titus... What you're about to hear from me are not suggestions, not guidelines, or recommendations. You are bound, just as I am, to do everything that God tells you to do. But Paul also says that he is a slave and an apostle for a reason. He identifies three reasons in verses 1, 2, and 3. And those three reasons really help us to get a good idea about the people of God. How does God identify us as his people? Well, Paul says that he is an apostle for those very things. And as we pull these strands apart to see these three different purposes of his mission, we also see three different facets of our identity as the people of God. And the first one's simple, right here at the very beginning, verse 1. For the faith of those chosen of God. The first purpose of Paul's apostleship, the reason he's writing to Titus, is to fulfill the ministry that he'd been given from the Lord for the purpose of bringing the chosen of God to faith and of furthering the faith of those who already have it. You know, faith is an attitude of dependence and trust. We talked about this a few minutes ago in our growth seminar. 
that faith is an attitude by which a person takes hold of all that God says he is and clings onto it for dear life, completely giving themselves in trust to what God has said he is and will be for them. Because of that, faith is one of those ubiquitous church words. It's everywhere. We hear it. We all know it. We saw this morning that it's actually a command of Christ. People everywhere are called to repent and believe, to express faith in Jesus. It's a command. And it's a personal responsibility that comes on each of us. Paul says in Romans 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Of course, John says it in the famous verse, John 3.16, God didn't send, well, God sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So belief is a command and it's a personal response that each of us have to give to God. But most importantly, and especially as we think about Paul's mission, faith is the way to salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And so as Paul thinks about his ministry and the ministry of his assistant, his uh, delegate on the island of Crete, he thinks first and foremost that God has sent him in the world to preach so that people would respond to the gospel in faith. That they would believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he lived life he said he lived, that he died on the cross for sinners, that he was raised on the third day victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and that he's coming again. Paul wants to see people exercise faith. And you read the book of Acts, and it's obvious. Everywhere he went, he looked at people like y'all, and he called them to believe. First in the synagogue, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And when he was rejected there, he went out into the street, standing on the street corner, speaking to anybody who would hear, believe. Express your faith. But he had a particular focus in the back of his mind. Everywhere he goes, he's scattering seeds, spreading the gospel, talking to anybody who will listen. But he knows that there is a particular focus to his ministry. Not just everybody everywhere, but he has a special interest in, did you get that? Those chosen by God. Your Bible may use the real church word, the elect, the faith of the elect. Now, I hear you chuckle, but I know in your minds you've got some alarm bells. We are triggered by this word, the elect, those chosen of God. We think of all the, I think of all the uh, heated debates I got into in college and seminary with people over the doctrine of election. How can you tell if somebody's elect? Do you believe God would really do something like that? Just choose some people and not choose other people? Well, Paul did, apparently. He said he's out there preaching for the faith of those chosen by God. And this idea of election or God having a chosen people is rooted in the Old Testament. Now I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Because I want you to see where this concept comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Somebody likes the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 6. I do like the book of Deuteronomy. What can I say? Deuteronomy 7, 6. Listen to what Moses tells the people of God. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you're the fewest of all the peoples. There's nothing impressive about y'all, Moses says. God didn't do that because you were important or impressive, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Paul says he's been sent out by Jesus in his authority to preach the gospel, to bring some people to faith, and the people he has in the back of his mind with a particular focus are those who have been chosen by God. Now Paul, being a Jew, would have a particular reference when he thinks about that. Surely he'd think about the people of the Old Testament, right? The chosen people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, whom God called out of the land of Ur and established him as a great man and blessed him and gave him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Surely that's what Paul means when you think about the chosen people of God, the elect. But even though it's rooted in the Old Testament, this concept of election is radically redefined in the New Testament. And Paul has a hand in that. Of course, the Holy Spirit working through Paul, but everywhere he goes, he tries to break down barriers between people, between the chosen people and the non-chosen people, the Jews and the Gentiles. So he wrote in the book of Colossians, in Christ, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. See, the concept that's rooted in the Old Testament, God choosing Israel among all the nations as His treasure possession, and set apart in a promised land to live with him forever and have his law is redefined, not on the basis of ethnicity or one's standing before God because of the law, but on the basis of Jesus Christ, whoever is in Christ. That's the criteria that Paul uses. It's redefined. Who believes in Jesus? They are the chosen of God. And so, in fact, Paul could say in Titus 2.14, we're going to see it in a few weeks, Titus 2.14, that Jesus gave himself for us. Now listen really carefully. See if you hear anything sounding similar from what we just read in Deuteronomy. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So here's the deal. Paul tells Titus, and he's going to get into the weeds down later and you're going to get to hear about it all again. That God had set him apart for a very particular purpose. Here he is preaching for the faith of those chosen by God. Our debates about the doctrine of election typically stay down here on the human level. You know, would God do something like that? How could God do that? That's bizarre and crazy. But from God's perspective, something entirely different is at work. When God looks at the nations, he doesn't see man and woman. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, satisfied and needy. He sees those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. Those who are out of Christ are all in the same boat. You're dead in the trespassing sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You're sinners. And unless God sets His love upon you and draws you to Himself, you'll never find Him. Now, Theologically and abstractly, that sounds crazy. That doesn't sound very fair. 
But practically and concretely in our lives, what it means is that you were born in such a time and place that through no act of your own, you were brought up in a country where the gospel was freely preached. And people got together on a Sunday morning to sit and listen to somebody open the Bible and explain it. That your parents were faithful enough to bring you to church. Or if they weren't, maybe your grandparents were, or maybe somebody on a bus route from a church. They came to your house and picked you up. They wanted you to be in church. And while everybody else was sitting around, all the events of your life were orchestrated in just a way that God got through to you. Why you and not them? What not because you're important or more special. You had something different in you that set you apart in His eye. Now, according to the Old Testament, according to Paul here in the book of Titus, it's because God is just merciful. Why? I don't understand it. Why? Paul says we're like the pot that looks up as his potter and says, why'd you make me this way? He says, who are we? Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. So we just shut our mouths and we just offer ourselves up to him. But for us today, who are we as the people of God? We are his treasured possession, people of faith who trust him, set apart for his glory. All right, so that's the first purpose of Paul's apostleship. The second one's important too, though. He says he wants them, people, us, to have a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Or you can put it together, a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. See, uh, Crete, yeah, anybody here ever been on a Mediterranean cruise and stopped off on the island of Crete? You have. What's Crete like today? It was back then. All right, back then, it's kind of a scandalous place. Uh, I hope you stayed out of trouble, Mr. Bobby. Because <laughs> listen to how Paul talks about the island of Crete. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 1 with me. He decides to quote an ancient Greek philosopher. We'll talk about him in a couple of weeks. But he says, this is what their own prophet says. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Right, so here, here Paul is, is writing to a man named Titus, overseeing some churches in different cities on the island of Crete. And he wants Titus to know that the people of God are not living in the most ideal circumstances for maintaining godliness. Y'all know what I mean? That it's not like everything around them is constructed in such a way that it leads them to being obedient to the Word of God. In fact... The whole mood and attitude of their society is opposed to God in ways that you can't even imagine. Paul says they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And as the people of God, living among people like that, uh, it's hard to maintain godliness. To make matters worse, out there in the world are all sorts of prophets and teachers and speakers who would lead people astray. To think it doesn't really matter what kind of life you live. That God is love. And so, do what feels right. But in fact, the whole letter of Titus is basically one long argument calling people to live godly lives. I almost called this series, Every Good Work. I think, I think it's six times that Paul uses the phrase, good works. That we're to be zealous for good works. That we've been set apart for good works. That we should be ready for every good work. He even ends the letter this way. Our people need to be taught how to do good works. Paul wants us to be about the work of God, to live a godly life. 
This godliness that he's talking about is a, is a word that was used in ancient Greece to describe the attitude that's appropriate of a person before the gods. So you could imagine uh, being in the presence. Let's just use, like, we talked about this earlier too, but Prince Philip passed away this week. Not a huge watcher of the royal people, okay? I don't know anything about it. But I do know that if Prince Philip were to grace us with his presence, you and I would feel compelled to act a certain way. Maybe we would bow before him, we'd call him crazy names, your excellency, your highness, yes sir, and all this kind of stuff. Whatever we would do, yes sir is always appropriate, but especially so for a prince. All right. But the deal is, there is an attitude that is appropriate in the presence of a person like that. How much more so one of the gods? They are powerful and they can turn against you pretty quick and you can end up on their wrong side and that'll be terrible. So you need to adopt the attitude that's appropriate to speak with respect of them, to offer them their sacrifices and to do your duties as a person is appropriate before these gods. Uh, the word's often translated piety. And so we know that there is a way of life that if it's appropriate for us to modify our behavior in the presence of a prince or some pagan deity like Zeus, how much more so is it important for the people of God to regulate their behavior in a way that's appropriate before the God who saved them and loved them? This whole letter is a continuous call to live a godly life. Paul's going to give examples next week, uh, qualifications for godly leaders who are going to lead people into godly lives. He's going to warn them against ungodly false teachers who reveal their ungodliness, not just in the words they say, but in the life they live. He's going to give Titus instructions on how to teach the church to live godly lives in a broken world. And none of these things are all that revolutionary. It's not like he's telling them, You've got to sell everything you have and move to China, be a missionary. You're going to have to go door to door and knock on every door so that somebody hears you. That's not the godliness he's talking about. Paul talks about things like temperance. Would, would, you, would anybody describe you as a temperate person, always as responding appropriately to every circumstance, or do you sometimes fly off the handle? Temperance is godliness. talks about gossiping. Loving one's family well, being reverent and respecting authority. The godliness Paul's talking about is nothing that revolutionary, but we've all been hearing the quote George Orwell said, in a world full of lies, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. That's true. But in a world full of lies, living the truth is even more revolutionary. And that's what God has called us to do. He's called us to be a city on a hill. People who live discernibly different lives. Problems facing our country are, are many. Y'all know that. We've, I'm not going to rehash it all. Uh, but the biggest problem in that sinners all of a sudden discovered sin. Or that they decided all of a sudden to act even more sinfully than before. The biggest problem in our country is that the church has lost its distinctiveness. There's no difference between us and them. So it looks worse because it is worse. There's nobody left who's hanging on to the truth. And so we've got to recover that. The people of God are to be identified by a knowledge of the truth that leads 
to godliness. But here's Paul's last mission. He says in verse 2, It's in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested, even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Listen, Paul's last mission is to bring the people of God into a posture of hope for their future. Hope for their future. You know, if it's revolutionary to live a distinctively different life, that probably means you're going to feel some heat for it. They usually try to kill revolutionaries. And so uh, maybe that's going to happen to some of y'all. But how do you maintain the right attitude? How do you keep your eye on the prize? How do you avoid the distractions of false teaching? How do you avoid getting sucked in to the careless way of living, the sinful way of living? How do you avoid that? Paul says it's by having hope and eternal life, a confident expectation of God's plan for your future. I love the way Paul describes it. He says, which God promised long ago which you could put it like before time even began, he promised this. And if you're a reader of the Bible, you may think like, well, I know a lot of God's promises. When exactly did God promise eternal life before time even began? And so you go and you, you know it's got to be on the left side. So you start flipping through the left side and you start looking and maybe you struggle to find it. And I don't know, you could probably come up with something, but I got to think about it this week. And you start thinking about promises before time began, and your mind is almost immediately brought into eternity past. Before there was a Luling, Texas, and a San Marcos River for people to swim in, before there was an America to hold up as a shining example to the world, before there was a world that revolved around the sun, before there was a galaxy with sons in it, there was God. And God was totally happy and content in himself. Like a smoldering ball of love. Completely satisfied in who he was. Had no need of anything else. Wasn't like he was lonely. God is Trinity. Perfectly content in the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. But somehow, before time even began, God determined as an overflow of his love mercy and grace and a desire to do good to somebody, he chose to create the world. To create not only a world, but people to live in it. A people who could call him God and that he could show himself to be a good God. And so he placed the first man in the Garden of Eden, gave him everything he could need, even a perfect helper. But he commanded him. There's a tree in the middle of that garden that looks good to you and you're going to want to eat it. But in the day that you do, you're going to die. And you think about that. We've talked about it. I've preached that passage and you've heard it a thousand times. Theologians have teased this out and kind of recognized the implication that if Adam didn't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, he wouldn't have died. He would have gone on living in the garden in perfect fellowship with God, having everything he needed. 
But of course he couldn't not eat of the tree. It's like a sin for me and you. You know it's bad for you, going to lead to your death and destruction, but it looks so good. And so he took of it and ate it. And God said, hey, we got to do something about this. So he punished him, punished the woman, punished the serpent. But I like what comes next. Because it says that he took the man and he placed him outside the garden. And God actually expressed his reasoning. Lest he take from the tree of life and live forever. So theologians have wondered, maybe God knew Adam was going to face the test, the temptation. And had Adam resisted, remaining obedient to God, God would have permitted him at that time to eat from the tree of life and be confirmed in his righteousness for all eternity. We can only speculate because, of course, that's not the way it played out. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that sin entered the world through the man and death through sin. So it's great that life was a potentiality, a hypothetical what if. But you and I know better than anybody that death is sort of the pervasive element of life on earth. But... That didn't change God's desire to have a people of his own possession set apart to himself as a city on a hill, experiencing an overflow of his divine goodness for all eternity. And where the one man fell, he sent his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Where Adam failed, the first Adam failed, resisting temptation, and therefore brought death on you and me. The second Adam succeeded, offering himself up to God in perfect obedience, never deviating one step away from the path that God had set before him, always upholding the perfect righteousness of the law, and thereby securing life. For all who believe in him. John 3.16. Whoever believes in him will not die like Adam, but will have everlasting life. Paul was sent, get this, Paul was sent into the world to preach so that people like you and me would not have to look at a world of sin and death and despair, but we could have hope in the eternal life that God has provided for us in his Son. It's not hard for me to understand why Paul gets to eternity so quick. I mean, sometimes people say that it's possible. I don't think this is true, but it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. But apparently that's not the way Paul thought. He thought that heaven and the eternal life that desires in Jesus is like a magnet that pulls us outside of ourselves and towards some glorious future, that we strain against it with all our might. That's what Paul said he did. It's not that I've obtained it yet, but I press on to make it my own. That is his whole goal. He wants to know the eternal life that God has secured for him in Jesus, and he wants other people to know it too. And church, if we're going to discover what it means to live as a city on a hill, we need to start here with hope, to have hope. Like what the one commentator, Robert Yarbrough, said, he said, the future God promises is more powerful than this fallen world, more powerful than the seemingly intractable evil and the setbacks that can so easily darken our vision, skew our judgment, and extinguish our hope. 
You know what he's talking about. When you got good plans for your life, you see how 2020 is going to play out. And then all of a sudden, stark reminder, you live in a world of death, among a people of death. There's nothing you can do to stop it. What's the point in living for this God? Yeah, that's a bunch of pie in the sky when you die. Do any earthly good for me now. How many people abandoned their faith this last year because God turned out to not be who they thought he was? How many people didn't abandon it but sure did stumble, fell down? The stuff of life became so thick they couldn't see through to what God had for them on the other side. They despaired. Paul says he's a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ so that people would have hope of eternal life. Peter calls it a living hope that God's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for y'all. For each one of you, God has stored up an abundance of riches that you can't even imagine, and He's just waiting for you to get there so He can pour it out on you over and 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 over every day for all eternity. God wants to show you the riches of the kindness that He has for you in Jesus Christ. We want to be a city on a hill hope in that are discernibly different from the people that you and I live next door to. I've never seen a person like that. So caught up in the goodness that God has stored up for them that they'd be willing to face whatever pressure, whatever fire, whatever darkness is in front of them to get to it. And yet that's exactly how God identifies us as His people. That we've got a hope that defies explanation. That we've got a godly that sticks out like a sore thumb among a bunch of liars and evil people. That we got a faith that takes hold of Jesus and doesn't let go. I wonder this morning, is your life defined by faith? Is your life defined by godliness? Is your life defined by hope? If you start to think about the dichotomy between faith and something... What is it, faith and doubt? Those are the opposites. Is your life defined by faith or by doubt? Is your life defined by godliness or selfishness? Is your life defined by hope or is your life defined by despair? Some of y'all know a darkness of despair that would make most people blush. But today, God wants you to have hope. What's keeping you from it? I wonder. I'm no Paul, not even Titus, Mr. Brad. But inasmuch as I am the man on stage with God's word open in front of me, I come to you as his messenger, speaking on his behalf, imploring you to be reconciled to God. To not go on thinking that if you try harder or do more, you'll somehow discover faith or genuine changed behavior called godliness or hope. But to surrender, just as Paul called thousands of people to do in his ministry, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God who fulfilled the law perfectly and died in your place, suffering the penalty that you deserve for all that sin. Jesus did that for you. So you could have hope. So you could have a future. 
few minutes, we're going to sing a song. And maybe while we're singing, you just need to have a little conversation with God in your own heart. You need to tell him, God, you know that he's talking about me. I got despair. I got selfishness. I got doubt. Help me to know what he's talking about. Help me to know truth in a way that changes my life. Help me to believe that Jesus is for me. And if you struggle to find the words for those prayer, I would love to talk with you to help you pray something from your own heart. But then I also know that there are people in here who know the Lord, consider themselves one of the people of God. Don't understand it, set apart for Him, a city on a hill, chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. And yet, in your own life, you see doubt and selfishness and despair. You can say that Jesus died for you too. You don't have to keep up appearances. He knows your heart. We can basically tell all of us anyway. So let the mask down. Confess your sins to Jesus. And church, I believe because back in October. I was down here on the floor with my Bible open in front of me asking the Holy Spirit of God to answer a simple question. What do you want from our church over the next 10 years? I'm racking my brain. Well, what would you learn in seminary, Brad? Well, this is what churches are about. Wrapping up this renovation project, what's next? How are you going to reach people? What programs do you need to start to make sure everybody in Luling knows Central Baptist Church is the place for their kids? You know, Central Baptist Church is making a difference through our programs. And something I, maybe God, probably God, led me to open the book of Titus. And I read through it, jotting down notes. And I'm convinced what God wants from our church over the next 10 years and beyond, what He wants for you, is for us to become so defined by faith, godliness, and hope that He shows us to be a city on a hill, a light of the world. That just by being so committed to Him with our whole hearts that He produces in us what only He can do, and He uses that to change the world. That's what He wants from our church over the next 10 years. And so as we work through this book, pray through it with me. Ask God to make it so, not just at churches on the island of Crete, but of a church in Luling, Texas. You got to pray with me?